from the Auto Line Studios. Here is your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you for joining us on AutoLine this week, where the discussion is going to be all about economics, the economy, and how this affects the automotive industry. And that's because I've got three experts to talk about it. Emily Kalinske-Morris is the chief economist at the Ford Motor Company. Mustafa Bahataram is the chief economist at General Motors. And Charles Chesbro is the senior principal economist at IHS. And great to have you all on AutoLine this week. Thank you. Wow. Uh, 2014 really was a great year, at least in the North American market. Maybe we should start our discussion there. Emily, sales came in 16.2, 6.3, 16.4, depending on if you're throwing medium and heavy-duty vehicles and uh, all that in there. But what's your outlook for 2015? Well, we look at uh, sales, including medium and heavy. So we see 2014, our estimate's actually around uh, 16.8 million. And for this year, we see a range of 16.8 to 17.5 million units, again, including medium and heavy. 17.5? That's the upper end of our range, yes. So are you one of the optimists uh, that's pushing this upper range, or what what do you think? Well, I think we try to plan toward a central tendency, so we don't want to get too excited. It's just the beginning of the year, so we'll have to see how things play out. Even so, 17, which would be in the middle of your range, is an awfully good number. Certainly looks good when you consider where we've come over the past couple of years. No doubt. Mustafa, what's your well, outlook? Well, recall from last year, I mean, I was at 16.5 for 14, and everybody thought I was nuts, that I was too high. <laughs> Obviously, we underestimated. But I mean, the U.S. economy has done really well this year, and it's not just the U.S. Canada is running at an all-time record. Mexico is running at an all-time record. So North America is, in a sense, carrying the world right now. And, you know, when I look out at this year, it's very much the same. I mean, the fundamentals of the U.S. economy are very strong. The fundamentals in Mexico are improving, and Canada is very strong. Canada is probably one of the best managed economies in the world at this point. So when you add it up, North America is again going to have a very good year. 17 million above? I I, I don't want to give out a number because, as you know, we give that out at the auto show. Okay, yeah. I leave that to Mary. Okay. (laughs) Charles, what's your outlook? Well, our firm is, uh, we're equally as optimistic as uh, as Emily and and those at uh, Ford Motor Company. We're expecting about uh, 16.9 million light vehicles uh, in 2015 and then another probably 400,000 when you throw in heavy duty. Uh, the the economy right now is just very, very strong in terms of uh, a lot of things out there that could really push vehicle sales into very strong record high territory. Uh, this collapse in, in uh, oil prices is going to have a big boost for consumers, really hit consumer confidence uh, very strongly. So we're quite optimistic that it could be a very great, great year for the automotive company in 15. Oh, we love where gas prices have gone. I, I got to wonder, did, did any of you see this big drop coming? You know, if you look at my charts from different presentations, we did have a lower bound of 17, I mean, 75 for the WTI. So it is below my lower bound. Mm-hmm. But, you know, let's let the dust settle as to where it settles. I, I think we may be in order, what I guess technical guys say oversold position right now. So let's give it a couple of weeks to see how where it stabilizes. So the, the pendulum's gone a little too far towards the I low think end. So. I think so. I think people are clearing positions. Emily, your thoughts? Oil prices? Yeah, I, I agree with Mustafa. You know, we have a very wide range around our central tendency. So I think we may we may, may have just picked up uh, today's prices at our at our lower bound. Uh, but in general, I think we know that that is a lower bound for where prices are likely to trend over the medium to long term. So while there are a lot of benefits today, particularly to the consumers from the low gas prices that we're seeing, 
you know, ultimately when people look at new vehicle purchase decisions, we know that they're thinking about having that vehicle for a period of several years and they're going to have to take into account the fact that we probably are again at the lower end of that range right now in terms of where gas prices are. Will they take that into account? Because we've seen, you know, sales of hybrids, diesels, electrics yeah. really take it on the chin while trucks and SUVs are through the roof. Right. In the near term, you absolutely do see the impact on segmentation. Um, it, and, and so that, you know, it will affect sales to a certain extent, but that's not to say that no one's buying fuel efficient vehicles. No, that's true. They are. But, but Charles, that's, that's what some people are telling me. Oh, you know, the stupid consumer, don't they remember anything? What's your take on how the consumers are going to buy new vehicles in terms of this cheap gas? Well, I think they are going to take their time and, and, and see whether this is the real deal, whether gas prices will stay at this level for an extended period of time. But our own forecast is we're expecting oil prices and gasoline prices to remain in this low territory for the next couple years. Uh, this price war that the Saudis and, and OPEC are going through right now, uh, uh, they've got a lot of money in the bank that they can ride this out. Uh, they're really trying to drive oil prices and long-term investors in the oil business, uh, trying to push them out. And so uh, I think the American consumer is going to benefit for quite a while. But I think consumers are, uh, they've been through this before. We've seen gas prices rise and fall dramatically. And I, and I think that they will, as, as Emily was saying, you know, a, a vehicle is a long-term purchase. So I think it might impact people on the margins. But for the most part, people are, are still no gas prices. Uh, they can't stay in this territory forever. Mustafa, what's your outlook? I mean, there's no question that, you know, tight sh shale, you know, this shale oil and, uh, and natural gas that we've got largely through fracking, uh, has been a game changer. Do oh. you think these low prices are going to put an end to that? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, you know, U.S. shale production, the consensus seems to be that at 60, you may see, begin to see some pullback. But don't think about U.S. alone. I mean, the shale reserves out of Texas go all the way into Mexico. So Mexico is about to liberalize and allow foreign investors to come in. And then Brazil finally gets to its senses and you know, says, we'll let some foreign oil companies in. They've got the deep water oil. So in a sense, when you look at where additional production could be coming into the marketplace, 70 to 90 to me seems like a reasonable range. And that's still far cheaper than what anybody was predicting it would be five, six years ago. Well, well I don't know about anybody. I <laughs> certainly, well, most people, yeah. I would say. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, and, and I think that's where it's going to make a difference, is that there was a lot of concern. Just go back three years ago when Libyan, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, North Africa was in turmoil, and everybody was talking about $150 oil. And I think that got people to thinking that, do I want to buy a certain vehicle when gas could be 4 to $5 a gallon? I think that will probably dissipate. So people are probably going to factor in gas of 250 to 350 And I think at that point, they're pretty neutral. They, they would rather go buy the vehicle they want Fuel, fuel economy becomes less important at that range. So, Emily, what kind of advice do you give to the Ford Motor Company if uh, all automakers still have very stringent fuel economy and even CO2 standards to meet? But if the public isn't buying necessarily the mix of cars that you thought that you needed to reach those levels, what do you do? Right. No, it is. it really is a challenge, John. And, um, you know, even though we do have, you know, these segmentation shifts that may be relatively short-term in nature, I think... You know, over the long term, gas prices at any level, really, we've had trouble getting consumers to accept the higher costs that come with meeting those, uh, those higher standards, particularly around acceptance for, um, for EVs. You know, you've seen a proliferation of products in that space 
and there's still less than 4% of U.S. sales. And I suspect that'll you know, continue to be under pressure at today's gas prices, but that was you know, even, even prior to these declines. So there are some definite challenges there, and I think that's why it's important to continue to look closely uh, at the requirements that we face and take into account the current environment when we evaluate those standards. Charles, uh, IHS does uh, a lot of economic forecasting and advising to automotive suppliers. What are you telling them about these cheap prices? Well, uh, that it's, it's uh, going to be a good thing for the economy. It's going to be a good thing for consumers, but uh, it can change on a dime. And that's something we know about uh, oil prices. Uh, if the Saudis and OPEC decide to change their strategy, uh, if we have mi more Middle East turmoil, uh, any kind of turmoil in Libya, which has been sort of a big surprise uh, uh, player in this market, uh, increasing uh, their supply quite a bit. All of the all of the story could change quite quickly. So uh, we tell them to be careful, but to, you know, prepare for a market that is going to see consumers wanting uh, bigger vehicles and uh, uh, less focused on fuel efficiency, at least over the near term. This auto industry, of course, is a very global industry. Let's talk about some other places in the globe. Mustafa, let me start with you. China, huge market. Every time I pick up the paper or read something online, it says, oh, the Chinese economy is slowing down or it's going to slow down. And yet when I look at car sales, they're still looking really strong to me. What's your outlook for China? Well, I, I think the days of double-digit growth in China are over. I think you're going to see a gradual coming down to the mid-single digits, you know, five, around 5% 5 growth, which is a good thing. I mean, you know, between congestion issues, pollution issues, and just the fact that the market was going crazy. I mean, when you think about it, you know, when we first went into China in 97, people were thinking, saying we were crazy to make that big an investment in China. Sales were under 4 million. This year, they're going to end up at just under 24 million. You know, so it's a market that's grown very dramatically. So you do need a period of stability, somewhat slower growth. Let things settle down a little bit. So, you know, for, from our perspective, it's a pretty positive development. Emily, uh, Ford has enjoyed spectacular growth in China, mm -hmm. topping a million units last year. And, and Ford got to the party late, so to speak. So what's your outlook for the Chinese market? I, I think, you know, our, our forecasts are, are similar to most outsiders. We have a range of uh, 24 to 26 million units for this year for China. That does reflect a little bit of a moderation in the pace of growth, you know, as Mustafa suggested. And uh, some of that is cyclical. There are some pressures on the Chinese economy right now, particularly emanating from some of the overinvestment in the property sector. Uh, and then there are some structural issues. As China adjusts from being a very investment and manufacturing oriented economy to one that's more focused on services and on the consumer sector, now that may be negative for GDP growth in terms of hitting those seven plus percent uh, annual growth rates that we've seen in the past. But in terms of the mix of growth, it actually may be relatively favorable for the automotive industry. In fact, we think it will be, and the bigger factor will be the policies around congestion and air quality that we've seen increasingly in some of the big cities. But I've got to believe if consumers are going to be spending more or, or become a larger part of the Chinese economy, that's got to be great for car sales. Absolutely. Now, there's still tremendous growth potential in China. Charles, do you look at China as well, and what do you guys oh, think? Oh, yeah, and, and China has just been such a phenomenal story uh, over the last uh, 15 years, uh, really just quite remarkable. Uh, and we expect it to continue to go. I, I think uh, Mustafa is uh, absolutely right. You know, the, the strong growth rates that we have seen in recent years, it's starting to moderate as a market. It's starting to mature. 
Uh, we're seeing uh, consumers want uh, you know, larger, nicer vehicles. Uh, quality is going to become more of an issue over there. So I, you know, I think the market is maturing and we're seeing that, but uh, you know, it's still on, on track to exceed a 30 million market here uh, you know, over the next decade or so. Geez, if they want bigger vehicles, more comfortable, maybe you guys ought to be selling pickup trucks over there. <laughs> Let's go to the other end uh, of the world, so to speak, uh, Mustafa, Europe. It, it just seems to be stumbling around. I mean, that, that's how I see it. What's your outlook? But divide Europe into two. Western Europe actually saw a fairly nice recovery, modest recovery. I think sales were up, by the time we get all the data, about 4% in 14 we're looking at the same 4 to 5% growth in Western Europe in 15. So Western Europe is doing really well. Eastern Europe, which is really Russia, problems. Uh, I mean, you know, between the adventurism in U Ukraine and Crimea and everything else President Putin is doing, that's going to be a very difficult market. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Western Europe is where the core of our business is, and that's recovering. Modest recovery, but recovering. Do you see it that way, Emily? I mean, some of that recovery, Spain and the like, is is uh, through a lot of incentivizing of the, the car market. Mm -hmm. I think uh, there still is a lot of very attractive pricing, shall we say, going on in Europe. Um, we did not take out a whole lot of capacity there, certainly not compared to what happened in the U.S. during the downturn. So that is providing some support to the market. That's not fantastic in terms of the, the medium to long-term outlook, in terms of the structure of the industry over there. And I think the growth outlook is, is very tepid right now. Uh, we'd like to see a little bit more support from the ECB. Um, that European would, that would Central help. Bank. The European Central Bank, thank you. And uh, that, that would help. It would certainly help particularly some of the uh, periphery countries. Um, but overall, the growth path right now does look a little bit a little bit soft. Still growth, but slow growth. Uh, Mustafa, I get the, the, the feeling you're a little bit more bullish than that. Well, I, I, th I think at every turning point, whether it's on the way down or up, people tend to suffer from hysteresis. So people are afraid to step out and say, hey, things have turned the corner here. And, you know, European market has fallen so far, it's bound to come up and come up more rapidly than you're currently projecting. And I'm of that school that I'm forecasting very conservatively, fully recognizing the history suggests the recovery will be stronger than I currently have baked in. But even if car sales come back, uh, getting to what Emily was talking about, uh, Europe has not taken out uh, as much capacity, at least the way I see it, as it should have. Right. I mean, you, you wish there had been more capacity rationalization and life would be better for everybody involved, but that's the reality of Europe. It's very difficult to take capacity out, I think, I believe GM and Ford are the only ones that really took capacity out. That's pretty much true. Exactly yeah. right. I think, uh, didn't Renault get something closed recently or, or reduced? But yeah. Charles, your, your outlook for Europe. Well, I, I, one of the things that does have uh, some lingering problems for Europe is that they really haven't changed anything to, from the, the crisis that they had just a few years ago with uh, the, the uh, sovereign debt crisis. Uh, and the, the, the combination of that union, uh, you know, I still have a hard time understanding how Greece and Germany ever sort of belong together. Uh, they're two entirely different types of economies. And so, uh, you know, this long-term unemployment problem that they have in many of the southern countries, uh, you know, that's going to continue to linger. You know, we're looking at 20% plus unemployment for many countries for years to come. So I think that there will be recovery in Europe. Uh, we're certainly uh, uh, forecasting that the market has turned a corner and, and vehicle sales will start to to increase very, very modestly. 
but there's still that threat that uh, any kind of sovereign debt crisis could pop up again because they really haven't addressed any of the fundamental issues uh, of that issue of that problem over there. Mm-hmm. Mustafa, you brought up Russia. I mean, uh, just two years ago. Uh, Automakers were pouring resources into the Russian market. Uh, As you noted, uh, because of President Putin's policies, uh, sure looks like Russia is going into a recession right now. Uh, What's your longer-term view of the country? That's policy-dependent. I I mean, will President Putin eventually see that this is not the path to economic prosperity? I think that's going to be a challenge with him. I mean, he's appealing to nationalism. He's appealing to... You know, the base instincts, uh, negative instincts, uh, the populace right now. So I think Russia will take a longer time to come back, uh, which is really unfortunate. And then the decline in oil prices isn't helping, mm-hmm. you know, because Russia really is a oil, major oil gas exporter, and that's where the revenue comes from, and they're hurting. So Russia is going to face severe challenge. And, you know, if we get a bad winter this year in Russia, you could have a lot more problems. Hmm. Emily, uh didn't Ford just very recently open a new assembly plant in St. Petersburg, uh, Russia? Yes. yes and yes. so what's your advice to the management at Ford as to what they should be on the lookout well, you for? You know, we watch the situation there very closely, obviously. And uh, as Mustafa pointed out, it's not just the policy environment, but right now they're getting an additional you know, pressure on growth because of the low oil price environment. They're one of those markets that does not benefit from uh, the commodity price environment that we're seeing today. So, you know, you have to be very cautious. Now, I think with a market such as Russia, it's still essentially an emerging market and they're subject to to huge swings. So you don't want to kind of look at the trough and and draw a line from there. Uh, But the recovery path is certainly very policy dependent, as as Mustafa pointed out. I I completely agree with that. So you really have to build some scenarios around that and lay out some fairly broad assumptions in terms of what uh, President Putin may or may not undertake in the next couple of years. Well, and I would just add that I, you know this this uh, oil price drop I think really took the Russians by surprise. I don't think they saw this coming at all, and uh, and the sanctions that the U.S. has put in place to kind of prevent additional technologies of oil drilling and fracking and all of that to get into the country is really going to have long-term implications in terms of the the growth rate for the country uh, once they get through this recessionary period. So I think the outlook for Russia is looking a little bit more pessimistic than even we were all thinking a few months ago. Mm, Very interesting. Emily, before you got promoted to chief economist, you were senior economist, especially looking at the Americas. Let's talk South America. Okay. What happened there? I mean, just a few years ago, everything looked rip-roaring good, and now looks like, with a few exceptions, most of it's just not where everybody thought it would be. Right. South America is a fascinating place. And, you know, it's really exciting as an economist because it's like Econ 101 there. It's, you know, this is what you should do and this is what the outcome will be. And then you see them do it or not do it. And you get kind of just what you would expect to see. And right now they've been making some relatively uh, unfavorable policy choices. You know, I I wouldn't say across the board, though. You look at the, the big markets that, you know, that we all tend to focus on, Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, you know, things do not look that good. But really, when you look outside of that, there are a lot of economies down there that are really focused on 
being more open markets that are doing a lot of the right things in terms of policy, and they're much smaller, but there you do see still some pretty good growth numbers. Hmm. You're, you're talking what, Chile, Chile Bolivia? Uh, Chile, of course, a little bit affected by the commodity cycle, but the fundamentals are very good there. Uh, Peru, the fundamentals are very good. And Colombia, despite all the political uh, issues there, they actually have done some good things on the economic front, and they've shown some very good growth numbers. And I know, Mustafa, you keep a close eye on that, too. Yeah, what policies matter? The Pacific Alliance countries, which you just enumerated, you know, Chile, Peru, Colombia, Mexico, they're all doing well because the policies are very sound. Venezuela is obviously a basket case. I mean, um, Brazil, under President Rousseff, has adopted some very protectionist, inward-looking policies and is paying the price. And Argentina had did the same thing earlier and is paying the price. But these are all very resource-rich countries. So if you turn the policies around, you could turn the economies around pretty quickly. And, you know, I don't know if you remember Dick Neurod. I do. Who headed GM's Latin American Opera. He said, you have to be in Latin America because when they do things right, you make a lot of money. But they also tend to do things wrong, and therefore you have to be prepared for it. You know, keep a laser focus on your fixed costs uh, in Latin America, and you'll do well over the long run. And I think... That advice remains true because these are commodity-intensive economies that tend to be more cyclical and more prone to commodity nationalism, which then leads to bad things. Well, what's the size of the South American market? Well, let's see. Brazil, you know, everybody was projecting to be about a four million market. Argentina was a little over a million. Venezuela, three or four years ago, was 400,000 units. So when you begin to add up, Brazil is about two-thirds. So Maybe a six million market. Mm -hmm. So a big market, huge yeah. market, very important market, right, Charles? Oh yeah, certainly uh, one of the, the, the countries uh, that we tell many clients that you know they need to, or continents that they we tell many of our clients that they need to focus on making sure they get in there uh, because it, we do expect to see some strong growth longer term. But I will say that uh, Brazil and Venezuela in particular are going to be hit very very hard by this low oil price environment. Uh, Brazil was really counting on being able to get uh, oil out of those uh, offshore uh, uh, platforms that they've been developing uh, to get it out of the ocean floor in the bottom there. Uh, and they can't do it at oil prices uh, this low. It's not profitable. Uh, and in Venezuela, which has already had many, many problems, uh, you know, as, as an oil country, uh, this low oil price is going to kill uh, their fiscal balances. So uh, again, I think this is another uh, part of the world that this low oil price environment uh, is not going to have such a positive impact out there. Hmm. But Jody, I, I, I think in, in the case of Venezuela, it may be positive that it may finally get them to adopt the right policies to resume growth. Could be. Brazil will be a more challenge to get Dilma to change, but I think Chavez, I mean, Maduro is now in such desperate straits that he will have to look at changing. Mm -hmm. Mustafa, what's your outlook for India? I mean, here's a country with potentially going to have a bigger population than China. If that ever catches on, we could see an enormous growth, or could we? No, I, the potential is there. And, you know, it's really amazing how the election of a new leader changes things. The election of Modi has just turned sentiment around completely in India. And companies and people are once again looking at investments in India, looking at growth. And, in fact, auto sales actually have picked up in the last few months. But, you know, I, I remain concerned about the ability to make significant policy changes in India just because of the, the structure of the country, the, the way the, the federal system is set up. So Modi is going to face bigger challenges than people really expect right now to 
implement the changes he wants. Uh, I think the other country we need to look at is Indonesia. Again, with a new leader, lots of optimism that he will you know, make some necessary changes. And both have, by the way, taken advantage of lower oil prices to eliminate subsidies for fuel, which were chewing up a huge chunk of their budgets. In the case of Indonesia, it was a little over 10% of their budget was going to fuel subsidies. Well, they've taken advantage of the price cuts to get rid of those. So I think both are trying to do the right things, but these are very large, complex democracies where changes are going to be harder to get through. And Indonesia, of course, is a country of over 200 million people, right. so uh, potentially like, a huge well, market, market, too. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you, people don't talk about it, but if you look at the rates of growth of vehicle sales over the last decade, Indonesia is one of the highest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Didn't know that. So, Emily, your outlook for India. Yeah, um, you know, I agree. It's, um, it's a very exciting market. Uh, you look at the size, and people like to compare India and China, but they're two completely different animals. Uh, but India does have some things in its favor. I mean, it's, it's not a control economy, so they can't sort of make things happen the way that the Chinese government is able to. Uh, but in the long run, we still think that that's fundamentally a, a positive. Uh, they have a very young population, which is, which is another big positive as we look forward. So I think we see that market continuing to advance. It's, it's really on the cusp of sort of what we consider the takeoff stage in terms of the levels of income. So I think with continued uh, good policies coming out of the Modi government, there's a lot of potential there for, for growth in the coming years. Yeah, I think uh, pointing out the demographics is, is a huge point because we know in China, they're soon going to start to see a, an aging, declining population, mm. just the opposite. So, Charles, <laughs> you, you, you get the last word. We're getting down well, towards I, the end. I, I was just going to say about India, uh, there certainly is a lot of potential there, but we must keep in mind that uh, you know, these aren't uh, people buying Cadillacs. These are people buying very small A and B-sized vehicles, uh, some of them almost go-karts, if you, if you really kind of look at them. So that it's not a high-priced vehicle that they're buying, but they are buying a lot of them. But I, but I also would just say that uh, I, I think Modi's come in. Certainly the optimism has really changed for that country. But I think people are starting to worry that he may not be able to, to deliver. And, and uh, he's going to get this honeymoon period, but we may be getting to the tail end of that. And we might see that uh, he maybe have bit off more than he can chew in terms of all the different policies he's trying to enact. And He's going to need to deliver or else this could change quickly. I do want to correct that thing about go-karts. No, they're buying smaller cars just because the tax structure favors buying smaller cars, but they're buying small cars. Remember a few years back where there was all the excitement about Tata Nano? Yeah. They didn't, didn't buy sell, that. Right. You know, that was the go-kart. Yeah. Then it didn't sell. They want real cars. People don't want to pay a lot of money, but they don't want to show their friends they're buying the cheapest thing that you can buy. Well, First-time buyers, it's a very aspirational purchase, so I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Hey, this has been a terrific conversation. I love you taking us all around the world with your outlook for 2015. So special thanks to Emily Kolinsky-Morris from the Ford Motor Company, Mustafa Mahataram from General Motors, Charles Chesbro from IHS. Thank you all. Okay. want to thank all of you for having tuned in.